On the Empire Podcast this week, we go full throttle with Rush stars Daniel Brühl and Thor himself, Chris Hemsworth. And we also chat to David Lowry, director of Ain't Them Body Saints. Plus, we go balls deep in David Tui and Finn Diesel's Riddick. Richard Curtis's About Time is also up. And there's the usual mixture of news and nonsense on the only movie podcast that thinks it would happily pay £85 million for bail. As long, of course, as you made Equilibrium 2. Hello, pod. I'm Chris Hewitt and welcome to the Empire Podcast in association with Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create a professional website, blog, portfolio or online store for a free trial and 10% off your first purchase on new accounts. Go to squarespace.com and use the offer code EMPIRE9. That offer code again, EMPIRE9. And now that message from our sponsors is out of the way, I'm joined by my very own trio of highly trained movie experts who spent their careers acquiring a particular set of skills. Skills that make them a nightmare for, well, proper jobs, but come in quite handy on frivolous nonsense like the podcast. First up is a man whose special set of skills include podcast editing, incredible film fact-finding, and, well, I'm guessing, plumbing. Isn't that right, Ali Plum? That's right. Uh, my family were the ones behind the uh, immortal plumbing centre, Plum Centre. Plum Centre? Yes. Wow. Really? No. Oh, okay. Uh, next up is a woman whose special set of skills includes speed reading, barristering, and the uncanny ability to write 84 blogs about hot-button topics at any one time. She's probably writing one <laughs> even as we speak. It's Helen O'Hara. Hello. Hello. Yes, I am. And last but not least is our art house guru, a man whose special set of skills include manning bergs, binding faces, and the controversial hobby of polanskiing. It's Phil Dissemblian. <laughs> Hi, Chris. How are you? Very well, yes. All week as usual, you've been sending in your questions and comments, and we're going to tackle the very best, or at least the, the first four that we saw right now. The first question is from at Sean1Neo, who asks, How do you feel when someone is being annoying in the cinema, and what action do you take? I taser them. I feel annoyed, and then I do nothing. I can't be the guy that stands up, turns around, and goes, How dare you? There is that thing where you don't know exactly who you're shushing or telling to shut up. Yeah, I think my first port of call tends to be this, you know, the slightly significant glare because also it doesn't disturb anyone around you, which is, which is good. And often, if you can make eye contact, they realise that you know they're annoying people, which I don't think people always do. <clears throat> Did you not recently have an incident with someone where you where you kicked them the back of their chair? I I what? didn't I just I did push the back of the chair yes so there's that that's that's in the bag that's an option that was that was after about fifteen minutes of talking and texting but um, as if someone falls asleep next to you oh, what, like you, you did do <laughs> in Pacific Rim <laughs> well I just I put tissues up my nose for a while and you shot them out you put his hand in the bucket of warm water just to see what happens oh wipe the drool off your shoulder every once in a while <laughs> if people are sleeping they just sleep if they snore I'll poke them okay. I remember uh, I was once watching Predators with Nick and uh, he got told off by a woman for breathing loudly. She says, could you stop, honestly, could you stop breathing so loudly? What? Are you insane? <laughs> it's how I breathe, woman. Could you just die? I think was what There are saying. people who breathe really loudly. I used to have a flatmate who would sit in the living room watching TV with me and his breathing did make me want to kill him. <sighs> Genuinely, he was... What happened to him? Uh, he died of natural causes oh good good <laughs> you've got a lovely patio now Helen haven't you I, I do yeah lovely I've built patio. it around the same time that, that you live on the second floor that's a strange <laughs> that's a strange thing I always, always wondered about that anyway uh, I think we've answered that to your satisfaction I hope Sean one Neo if that is your real name uh, next up from at Miller Time 1976 last week we had a question about writers and we did uh, this week I'm going to ask who are your favourite composers I'm going to be the first to say it. John Williams. Oh, come on. I went there. That's come on. right. Hackneyed. 
I also like uh, Dario Marianelli. Uh, I think uh, Pride just and Prejudice. Yeah. yeah, I think the Pride and Prejudice soundtrack is is lovely. Okay. Uh, yeah, John Williams is amazing. I still kind of coo in awe and wonder at the run he had between 1977 and 1982, where he wrote the uh, the scores. In fact, last extended in 1983 and put Return of the Jedi in there as well. He wrote the scores for Star Wars, Superman, E.T., uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark, uh, Empire Strikes Back, Return of the Jedi, all in that time frame. All of them, cla- Close Encounters, all You've of them You've got to classics. go back to Jaws. You have to go back to Jaws. I have to extend it to 1975 now. Thanks a bunch, John Williams. I mean, that's just, for me, an unparalleled run of creativity. Uh, iconic themes just falling out of the man. Yeah, and yeah, he still had amazing. the likes of Jurassic Park to come. I mean, he's yeah. he's fantastic. Well, he's tailed off, I think, in terms of his iconic scores uh, recently. But yeah, Jurassic Park, Harry Potter, still very Schindler's hummable. Mm. I don't hum Schindler's List theme as, as often as the other ones, Phil. I don't, I don't stick it on my iPod for, for pleasure. But yeah, definitely, definitely John Williams. Uh, people who listen to the podcast regularly may know I'm an, an enormous, um, <laughs> I'm rapidly becoming enormous, but um, I'm I'm a huge John Carpenter fan. Uh, mm. I love his scores, and it, it's a, it was a shame to me he didn't do the score for his uh, last movie, The Ward. In fact, when, when you interview John Carpenter, he kind of feels that it's one of those weird things where he doesn't hold his work in the same esteem as you hold his work. Um, I think Steve uh, Nick had this problem with Steve Martin as well when... Nick was interviewing Steve Martin when I love the man with two brains and Steve Martin went well, I don't and, but you're you're welcome to like it uh, but I think um, I think that's one of the reasons why John Carpenter brought in Ennio Morricone for example on the on mm. the thing I love Morricone um, Gabriel's oboe is one of the just most gorgeous pieces of music out there mm. and uh, Once Upon a Time in the West Once Upon a Time in the West yeah. um, and Spaghetti Western th- uh, themes scores uh, yeah. Jerry Goldsmith oh god yeah the late great Jerry Goldsmith um, I love Morris, Morris Jarre's work with David Lean lots of Chivago and Lawrence of Arabia, mm-hmm. etc. Bernard Herrmann with Hitchcock. Of course, yeah. Well, as an example of a composer who you wouldn't necessarily be able to hum most of the stuff that is his best work, he is hidden away. And that's to be congratulated. It's not all John Williams scores or Howard Shaw and Lord of the Rings. It's sometimes just that kind of... Incredible atmosphere work, basically, rather than melody, yeah. Phil, you obviously uh, you were behind the uh, greatest soundtracks feature that we ran on the website uh, recently. Did you discover anyone new during your research in that one? Anyone who maybe you hadn't heard before? I, I guess I wasn't as familiar with people like Nina Rota, mm-hmm. who's worked with who worked with Fellini, obviously, um, and just exploring some of the jazz musicians that have done scores, like Miles Davis on the "Lift to the Gallows." Weird ones like Johnny Greenwood, wasn't it? On uh, "There Will Be Blood," is that's just a magnificent score, absolutely breathtaking. I would never listen to that outside of the film. I find that so jarring it and is, painful. But I still have. I just think it's I just think it's incredible. I don't mm. know why. Um also Carter Burwell, wasn't it, for True Grit? I absolutely love that score. Absolutely. Yeah, he's a Cohen's regular go to yeah. guy. I think also going back to some of the early the earliest the some of the, the guys, Dimitri Tiomkin and Max Steiner, Eric Korngold, those guys that that really established the language. Um Alfred Newman, um obviously sort of begat a legacy of, of um film composers like Thomas Newman, his grandson, they established, they kind of created this whole musical language for film music. And, um, you know, if you don't know those, those, the, those, their work, check it out immediately, I would. Before them, it was really sort of classical music or a guy in the, in the cinema tinkling along. I do think that this is going to dissolve, uh, as last week's didn't, just as listing of a whole bunch of names. But, you, you know, you, you could do a lot worse than check out Leila Schifrin's work. You know, his Dirty Harry score is amazing. Elmer Bernstein for example, also fantastic. Anyone else? Both Bernsteins, really. Both Bernsteins. A recent uh, strong kind of melody-led um, score that still makes me very, very sad when I hear it is uh, 
up. Michael Cicchino. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, he's great. He's astonishing. Yeah, because he, he favours melody, I think. He really places a, a great premium on melody, on having hummable, memorable themes that really stick in your mind. His Star Trek work as well. Oh, yeah. Star Trek's astonishing. I, I mean, we've already discussed this, but in Star Trek Into Darkness, my favourite bit is when his music lands and you see the vapour trails, the warp trails. It's astonishing. Uh, but I'd also like to mention John Barry. I mean, obviously there's a controversy between him and Monty Norman with who wrote the Doctor No theme. So legally, as he has sued many people on, on this topic, uh, Monty Norman is the man who wrote the Doctor No theme. It was rearranged by John Barry, uh, which is why people get a little confused. And people say certain things about it, and, and there is an ongoing debate as to who really wrote it. But really, sometimes you just got to let it go. Uh, but yeah, he actually appears, John Barry, you may or may not know this, in The Living Daylights, he's the conductor. Uh, so I did you, not know that. So Is that you, true? So you can check him out there. So that's always good fun. Don't forget, he didn't just do the Bond themes. He also did Dances with Wolves and Out of Africa and a whole host. I think he won five Oscars in total uh, from stuff that was outside of the Bond universe. I was lucky enough to see him, actually, before he died. There was a celebration of his work at the with the London Symphony Orchestra at the Royal Festival Hall. And he came down. He was old and frail at this point because it was about, I think, five or six years ago. And he came down and conducted on a Majesty's Secret Service theme. Wow. That's pretty much all, I think, all wow. he had the energy for. And then he was replaced by a conductor who, to get the crowd involved, would introduce every one of his songs with a little quiz. But it was so on the nose. He'd be like, and this next track is about a man who rakes lunar surfaces. That's right. It's the Moonraker theme. <laughs> we'd be like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's a man who was once on the continent of Africa, but he left it. It's that out of Africa. Amazing. Is anyone um, going to the uh, Danny Elfman uh, concert at the Royal Albert Hall in October, where he's coming over and there's a a big concert of his music? No. We haven't mentioned Danny Elfman yet, but his, some of his work with Tim yeah, Burton is fantastic. Yeah, some of his stuff is great. So you also wrote the score to Midnight Run, which is really atypical for him. If you listen to that, it's like, who wrote? Danny Elfman wrote this? Really? You should go and check it out. Lots of synths and saxophones also a very quick word Alan Menken for his animated work with Disney um, I think he's great and it, he was particularly great when he was still working with Howard Ashman and they did The Little Mermaid together they also all, are also responsible for Little Shop of Horrors one of my favourite musicals do you know what we've been talking about this for about 10 minutes and we haven't mentioned the Z word Zimmer xylophone xylophone <laughs> that's next <laughs> Good you haven't mentioned Hans Zimmer um, he, he seems like you'd almost don't need to mention him because he's so everywhere and he's, in fact, on the homepage of Empire right now. We've got an exclusive of the soundtrack of Rush. You can listen to the entire thing online before it's even released. Wow. Check it out. That's synergy. That's amazing. I like it. We've got a whole host of similar interviews, actually, up on the website. Um, so do give that a search on the search box. But also Danny Elfman. We've got a kind of movie by movie with him, which I think Owen Williams did. It's a great, great uh, read. So do dig in if you're into this sort of stuff. Yeah, there's a lot of soundtracky stuff. On the uh, website, and I'm sure we, I'm sure we've mentioned this in the podcast before. We're now in podcast 77. I can't be expected to remember everything we've said in the podcast in 77 episodes, but I'm sure we've mentioned at some point that Hans Zimmer's greatest moment is writing the theme tune to "Going for Gold." Yes, that's right, the theme tune to "Going for Gold." Yeah, Amazing. He should have just quit. Right, how does it go? Quit. It goes. Oh, well, it's difficult. It goes to dun 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 dun, dun and then some synths go do 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 do. I have to go lower and then voices come in and go going for gold the heat is on the time is right it's time for you for you to make your play cause people are coming everyone's trying trying to be the best that they can when you're going for going for 
cold. Yay! <laughs> there we go. Oh, oh, that man is silver medal. Oh, thank you. Hello, <laughs> listeners. Are any of you still out there? Has Henry Kelly walked in? Is he still alive? Probably. Anyway, let's <laughs> move on now to the next line. The last question is from at Land Uncharted, who asks: Since I'm going off to uni tomorrow, what are some good university-themed films? X-Men. Um, <laughs> that's not a university it's a school for the gifted honestly I've got a bit of a bugbear with this because the ones everyone thinks of off the top of their head are all going to be in, I'm guessing US ones like you know Animal House and Goodwill Hunting and you know old school the list goes on and on and on but for me I've often thought why aren't there more British university films why aren't there more I mean can we include Rise of Taj which is set no, uh, <laughs> no, we in, can't. In, in a British university. Yes, it's in. I think it's actually Oxbridge University that he goes to, and uh, which is, of course, the same place. Uh, Oxbridge Academy is where is where Batgirl studied in Batman mm. and Robin. Yes, I think we all remember. Of course, Absolutely. of course. I, I actually remember writing a blog at the time about Van Wilder Two: The Rise of Taj because I find it so offensive. I think it does. It falls into that trap that many American films aimed at young people do, where a character comes to Britain. The only people that they meet are incredibly snobbish, incredibly posh people. Now, that's just, you know, it's like for everything from Garfield 2 to What a Girl Wants to Van Wilder 2, The Rise of Tires. These are not great movies, but they all feature... you've seen all these movies. Yeah, I don't Varsity know what Varsity Blues does it as well, doesn't it? Varsity but everything. It's just always they come to the UK and they fall in with the worst people in the world. Very annoying. Yeah, Oxford Blues. Wasn't that with... Um, Rob Lowe. Rob Lowe. Mmm, hunky. Uh, but there are a few British films that are university-led. Obviously, One Day recently had, had uh, Edinburgh University, Phil's Old Haunt. Uh, then you've got things like Chariots of Fire. And it's not university, but it's about trying to get into university. The History Boys has plenty of English university-ness to it. I like Starter for Ten, which I think is the, the most British university-themed thing. And I think it's probably the more most realistic... It's what it's a little bit kind of dated now, but it, it feels much closer to the truth than most of them. If you went on University Challenge, and I have no doubt you'd win, what would be your mascot? Um, I do have a little, you know, Pinky in the Brain? I have a little toy brain at home. I'd bring him for luck. It's intimidating. <laughs> exactly. Got an extra brain. I think that's cheating. A couple of quite good American college set, liberal arts college set movies last year. Liberal arts. Yeah. Liberal arts, yeah. <laughs> what was that said? That was, yeah. Josh Radner's film and um, Damsels in Distress. Whit Stillman movie, which was quirky and fun. Also the social network, which reminds me so much of my school days. I mean, really. It's just, you know, everything they did, I'd done. Yeah. When you stop writing algorithms on the window, it's really annoying. Oh, especially sorry. in I, I had that experience during Monsters University, to be honest. I've got one last one, which isn't the best uh, interpretation of a great book, but Lucky Jim is one of my favourite books of all time. It's a fantastic read. If you haven't read it in the past year, reread it. But the movie itself from 1957 isn't the best. It's a little bit ooh-matron for my taste, and it doesn't quite get the subtlety uh, that I'd like uh, across. But it does include the absolutely wonderful, um, uh, I was about to say Terry Tate again, but Terry Thomas. Uh, you know, yeah, it's very good. You know, <laughs> you remember him. He has a lovely little moustache. And I absolutely loved him growing up. I lo- watched a lot of those. I was a kid who always would go through like the uh, magazines, uh, the TV magazines in, in the back of the newspapers and just circle all these old movies just because, you know, it's free. Free movies. Amazing. And... I just loved him. I absolutely loved him. I found him hilarious. And it's in part because I love Basil Brush uh, and all that stuff sprung off it. But anyway, he's in Lucky Jim. And I just wanted to give a shout out to him because he uh, he's a really funny guy. And he, he unfortunately ended his life. He had Parkinson's and kind of everything went wrong for him. But he's an absolute... He was one of the real gentlemen of cinema. And uh, 
needs more love um, if you haven't already seen on a Sunday afternoon How to Murder Your Wife or School for Scandals or Those Magnificent Men and Those Flying Machines I just love him and he was the origin fact fans for Dick Dastardly so imagine that and Basil Brush and Basil Brush I thought we would have going to get through an entire podcast without one of Ali's amazing film facts well then also in the fast show you got the 13th Duke of um, yeah, yeah. Winburn me the 13th Duke of Winburn Pierre the Empire Pop I think he's based on Nick Rogue <laughs> you old rogue uh, I'm going to throw in Educate and Rita as well because mm. I really love that film oh, yeah. I think Michael Caine and Julie Walters are fantastic and it, you know, Hogwarts isn't university but to all intents and purposes really Harry Potter is a series of university films because when they graduate Helen you know this because you're a nerd um, do they Thanks. go is there like <laughs> is there like a witch and wizarding like I'm not is there a witch and wizarding university that they go on to no, there doesn't really seem to be. She it hasn't thought this has she? No, well, she's, they seem to go straight into the sort of the ministry. Actually, JK you know Rowling, give back all your money. You haven't thought this through. TV probably has done best justice to this in the shape of Fresh Meat in the last couple of years, which is a show I love. And the later seasons of Gilmore Girls. Good college stuff there. Helen has uh, triumphantly Googled. Yeah, there is no uh, set tertiary education in sort of the Harry Potter universe. So they, I think they go straight into the ministry and work their way up. Those of them who go into the ministry. Choices are limited in the wizarding world. Very state-led. It is very state-led, isn't Economically it? Economically unsound. And that is it for your questions this week. If you want to get in touch with us, uh, the usual addresses still apply. We're on Twitter as Empire Magazine, at Empire Magazine, of course. Use the hashtag, please, Empire Podcast. We're on Facebook, where we're, guess what, Empire Magazine. You can email us, and a few people have. We'll be using your questions next week. Podcast at EmpireOnline.com. Some belters there. And, of course, this week... In association with our wonderful sponsor, Squarespace, we have another competition. This week we're going to give away one Blu-ray of Iron Man 3 and Star Trek Into Darkness to one lucky listener. All you have to do is answer the following ridiculously easy question and then send us your answer to the email address podcast at empireonline.com with your name and your contact details. And then who knows, you may win this. The question is, the ridiculously easy question is, what is the name of Sir Ben Kingsley's character? In Iron Man 3. That is an easy question, believe me. The character is on Twitter, if you fancy a bit of detective work. And, of course, you could just watch the film. Uh, okay, time for our first guest now. David Lowry is one of the fastest rising directors in America. He displays a particular set of skills this week with the powerful drama Ain't Them Body Saints, which stars Casey Affleck as an outlaw who escapes from prison and moves heaven and earth to try to get back to his girl, Rooney Mara. Lowry came in last week with his magnificent moustache to talk about the movie and his love of Star Wars, of all things, with yours truly. Enjoy. Uh, we're delighted to be joined in the pod booth by the writer and director of Ain't Them Body Saints and the editor of Upstream Colour, funnily enough, uh, Mr. David Lowry. Uh, David, welcome. Thank you for having me. Uh, that's an interesting combination of jobs. How did that come about? That you have, You're editing Upstream Colour, which comes out August 30th, and then your own film comes out September 6th, which you wrote and directed. And, uh, so how did that happen? They really were you know, backed up in production the same way that they are in release. <laughs> it's, it's pretty hilarious that they're, they've continued you know, to keep pace with each other. But I, you know, I live in Dallas, and Shane was living in Dallas at the time as well. And as I was preparing to make Eight in the Body Saints, he was getting ready to make Upstream Color, and he had shared the script with me. And mm-hmm. I helped him get in touch with Amy Simons, who stars in the film, because I've worked with her quite a bit in the past. And mm-hmm. and so, you know, he was kind of working in the background, you know, of my life while I was working on my movie. And I knew he was shooting, and then it was a, the shoot was, you know, a long and intense one. And um, at a certain point. I guess it just got a little bit too intense because, yeah. you know, he was certainly was planning to edit the film himself. I think he would do every job on the movie himself if he could. He would have played all the parts himself if he could. <laughs> but he uh, he 
just needed someone else to start working with the footage. And this was, you know, about three months before we started shooting Ain't the Body Saints. So my first instinct was, no, I don't have enough time. Mm. My second instinct was, this movie looks absolutely amazing. I have to work on this. <laughs> and my third instinct was, man, Shane is so demanding and so you know, he's so committed to what he wants and so specific with what he wants that there's no way I could ever actually achieve even, you know, a modicum of what he's after. So I, I told him that, yes, I want to do it, but the moment I stop making you happy, just please let me know and I'll walk away and we can remain friends because I don't want to let you down. Right. And so he was shooting the movie. I started editing it. I started editing in LA, actually. He just shipped me a hard drive and I was out there meeting with the actors and and I would go home at night and work with the footage, and then I went back to Dallas and kept working. I kind of just moved into his house, where most of the movie was shot, actually, <laughs> and, okay. and, uh, and, and was editing in the bedroom, and, and it worked out. You know, I, for you know, whatever reason, I was able to get exactly on the wavelength that the movie needed. I think it was, you know, he was using a lot of ideas that I had myself as a filmmaker, mm-hmm. that sort of slipstream, that fluid quality, that new mode of narrative that he was after, mm. was something that I myself was very keen on. And so it just worked out beautifully. It was an incredibly satisfying, almost joyful creative process for me because I was working on a movie that was perfectly in line with my own interests as a filmmaker. Mm. And he was happy with what I was doing. So I, he never told me to, <laughs> he never told me to leave. And I kept working on it all the way up until the day I left to go shoot uh, shoot my movie. And so I got through, you know, like you know two months of work with him which was you know we fi- we finished the movie and yeah. it was a, a remarkable experience and a great way to, to move into production on my own and uh, in terms of the movie itself Ain't Body Saints I mean we were talking about the title earlier on in the Empire Office uh, and it's a it's a hell of a title uh, I, that was the intent <laughs> yeah was it, is it a case of do you start with the title first and end script or, or how does it work in this case that was the case the title yeah. was something that existed long before the script and it was it's basically misheard song lyrics. Like yeah. I misheard some some lyrics and interpreted them as ain't the body saints. And even after I knew I was wrong, like I just liked that phrase. It had a nice sound to it. It had a nice rhythm to it. And when I started writing the script, I wanted the movie to feel like an old folk song. That was always the idea to have a song, a movie that felt like a song. Mm. And so having song lyrics as the title was a natural progression of that. And I went back to this phrase because I thought it was... It resonated nicely with the the themes of the movie, but it also just, I I think it sets the tone for what you're about to see on a subconscious level. It really, you know, you'll sit down and you know that this is what the movie's called and you know that that's the world it takes place in because of, you know, certain idiomatic qualities of the title and Mm. and it just, it's it's a great tone setter. Uh, We were talking on last week's Empire podcast about how uh, certain film titles don't translate well around the world and so they get changed for other countries. For example, Army of Darkness in Japan is known as Captain Supermarket. That's a great is, title. <laughs> which is an amazing title. <laughs> uh, so have you encountered any problems with the Ain't Body Saints around the world? Is there? A, so it, far, it's the only time it's not been... I mean, yeah, Ain't can't be translated, we found out. Like, that <laughs> doesn't, it, it doesn't. And, you, and, and then having a grammatical inconsistency, Ain't Them, that's, you know... It, it, it's a title that's distinctly American. So you can either own that and just say, here's an American movie with this yeah. stupid American title <laughs> that we can't change, we can't change. Or you come up with something new, which is in France. It's uh, Los Amants de Texas, Lovers of Texas. That's good. Which like is a, as well. Yeah, especially in... They, they, they uh, told me that any movie that 
resonates with you know Los Amantes de Pont Neuf, the Leo Carax movie, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. it will do well. So I was like, great, I love that movie. <laughs> I, I'm happy to be associated with it, and um, and hopefully people will understand. You know, when you when you translate it, it, sounds like you're saying people who are in love with Texas, which that works too. And, but yeah. you know, it, it, it's lovers in Texas, I guess. Another thing we talked about in terms of the scripting process is that when you started out to write this movie, it, it was more of a straight action movie. Um, and uh, you, you've said in the past that that was something that you found very difficult to write. You were more interested in the aftermath of the action rather than the action itself. But do you still have action scripts within you? Do you still have that 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 urge to write a straight up blockbuster? I think I, I think I could. I mean, yeah. I I look at something like what Steven Soderbergh did with Haywire, and I think that that's just a terrific movie. Yeah. And because it's just it, there's no meat on it. It's just like it's like here's the bones of an action movie. And that's what we're gonna we're gonna take that as far as we possibly can, and I guess I, there's plenty of meat out. There's no fat on it, is what I was trying to say, mm. and and that is really appealing to me. And and I think that in terms of like blockbuster filmmaking, I I would love to write a really good, you know, superhero movie. <laughs> I don't know. Like, or I, I there, there, there's no denying that that is the kind of movies that I grew up on that got me into making movies. Mm. And I've moved away from that because I, I there's other types of movies and stories that I want to tell. But mm. if I had the chance to to write something like that, I would I would certainly do it uh, and maybe direct it too. I don't know. It's been interesting because uh, th- this movie has uh, uh, probably fair to say has brought you to Hollywood's attention. So you, you're you're in development now. You're writing a couple of scripts. You're writing a remake of Pete Strike for Disney. <laughs> there's that. There's the Hollywood movie. I'm writing. There's a Hollywood yeah, movie right. precisely. Um, but you're also writing a, a sci-fi movie, which will reunite you with Casey Affleck, which is called Two B Two. Can you talk about that one? What, what? Yeah, it's it's a short story. The full title, which we, we call it Two B Two, just because it's easier to say. But the full <laughs> title is Two B Two or Not to Be, right. and it's a it's a short story that, on a very you know uh, philosophical level, deals with ego theory versus bundle theory, and mm-hmm. and takes these you know, these concepts and applies them to a, a science fiction tale to sort of help illustrate them. Um, anyway, it's a very very heady story, and uh, Casey gave it to me after we finished shooting and said that this is something he always wanted to tackle, mm-hmm. and uh, and asked if I'd be interested in it. And I read it and fell in love with it, and and we started working on it. We started figuring out how to expand it into a feature and. And so, yeah, I'm writing that now. And, mm. you know, if, if I had my druthers, we'd be shooting that sometime next year. <laughs> and on this basic level, it's about teleportation and... and yeah, it's. I, I found out recently there's an episode of the, the TV show Family Guy that has exactly the same plot. <laughs> I had no idea. <laughs> but, it's, yeah, it's a, about a, a, a teleportation accident that results in, in someone being duplicated. Okay. And all of the quandaries that emerge from that. Yeah, I mean, uh, a lot of people uh, uh, read stories about it last week when, they, when the news emerged mm-hmm. on the same day as uh, another Affleck it, <laughs> piece <yeah>. of news <laughs> broke about Ben being Batman. Well, that one overshadowed uh, us a little yeah, bit. Like, but uh, a lot of people, you know, compared it to Looper in a way. It seems to be a very high concept science fiction movie that's, that's being tackled on a uh, intellectual basis. Yeah, the the, the the Looper comparison. I don't know where that actually came from, but yeah. um, I guess it's because there's going to you know, there's going to yeah, be two cases and exactly. Yeah. Um, but uh, I think that it, it does. It's like not like that movie at all. It's it's. I love. I thought that movie was terrific. But it's um, it's definitely much more without sounding too highfalutin about it. More like an intellectual mm-hmm. thing, and there's you know less action and more talking this movie sounds horrible already <laughs> i'm just digging my own grave here but uh um but there there no there's act we, we we jokingly would describe it as 
uh, Casey and I would describe it as The Fugitive Meets Birth, which is the, <laughs> like, that, that sounds like the worst movie ever, but actually it's going to, I promise it'll be the best movie ever. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I'm sold. I'm sold two tickets already. Great, great. Uh, but you've also got this uh, Robert Redford movie as well, which is The Old Man and the Gun. Uh, can you talk about that? What's, what's, uh, what's, yeah, that? that's um, uh, an adaptation of a New Yorker article. And that is the, yeah, the other thing I'm writing, I'm, I'm engaging in active schizophrenia back in my hotel right now working on two scripts at once or actually three I guess but um yeah. but it's a, a really terrific true story about this character who from you know the time he was 14 years old all he wanted to do was to rob banks and mm-hmm. to be a to be a famous bank robber and he persisted in it all the way up until he finally got caught for the last time when he was 79 years old and uh and so with our story focuses on a, a, a spree that he went on. He broke out of San Quentin very memorably mm-hmm. in uh, 1979 and managed to stay on the lam for about three or four years and, you know, amassed quite a lot of money and was, you know, greatly successful at just robbing banks all over Texas and the Southwest. And, uh, and I love that. I love the idea of someone who, you know, this is the one thing he's always wanted to do and finally he actually got good enough to succeed at it for a while (laughs) and so we're just focusing on the period where he was really good at it and and then finally you know as these things go they you know he did get caught Mm. he uh went to prison for another 10 years got out when he was 79 went right back to it got caught again and eventually passed away in prison but you know when 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 it was working it was working well for him and and so that's what we're going to focus on uh, who wrote the uh, the article in which it was placed? His name's uh, David Grant. He's a journalist, yes. and he, and actually yesterday Matt Damon announced that he's going to be adapting another one of his stories. Which mm. is, uh, that guy's written quite a number of amazing articles. Mm. He wrote uh, the Lost City of Z, which James Gray was going to make for a while as well. If I I think that uh, that story you're talking about, uh, the Old Man and the Gun, is is in his book, The Devil and Sherlock Holmes. It is, it's yeah, fantastic, it's yeah, that. it's really really good. You're just reading that, going, well, that could be a movie. That could be a movie. That Every, be a movie. Everything he's written could be a movie. <laughs> he really finds he hones in on some amazing stories absolutely we, we, we were talking um, uh, about your first meeting with Casey Affleck and I imagine it must be slightly uh, not not off-putting but slightly surreal because you suddenly write a script and you think oh, I'm not gonna make this with name actors and then suddenly you find yourself with a script that generates interest and sitting, you're sitting down with Casey Affleck um, what was that like and then did that prepare you for your first meeting with someone like Robert Redford you know, we met up in this little cafe in Los Feliz in Los Angeles, and I remember sitting there waiting for him to show up and just thinking, I'm, this is crazy, I'm about to meet Casey Affleck, you know, I'm, images of Jerry and Goodwill Hunting rushing through my mind, and because <laughs> uh, I've, I've admired him for so long. Jerry was a profoundly influential movie to me, and, and also I loved Goodwill Hunting when that came out, and, yeah. and he had all the best lines in that, and <laughs> and, uh, and so I've always loved him and, and, and was excited to, you know, even just know that he had read my script and he walked in and very quickly you know the, I think the thing that happens you know other people who maybe have met more celebrities than I would think I'm silly for this but like realizing that someone actually is you know a normal person's height that's like it, <laughs> it was like it was like oh he's, he's there he 20 is. Feet yeah. tall, yeah. exactly and he came in and, and sat down and we just started talking and and we just got along really well you know we talked about music that we liked and movies that we liked and and we were just on the same page and very quickly you know within a minute or two it, it wasn't me meeting a famous actor it was me meeting somebody who was on the same page and spoke the same language as me mm-hmm. and and 
we just got along really well and we're both vegan that helped and and uh and so really and the same thing happened with rooney who also was vegan so maybe it's dietary things that help us all be on the same page but um Ben Foster was not, and then uh, that was noticeable. But was um, he just taking chunks out of cows on set. Was that- <laughs> yeah, he, he's he's a red meat kind of guy. Okay. So it was very down to earth. Yeah. Then you go meet someone like Robert Redford. There's no way for that to be down to earth. As, <laughs> he could try as much as he wants for it to be down to earth, and he does. He, I mean, he just. I remember I was in his office, and he just walked up and tapped me on the shoulder. I was like, "Hey, how's it going?" I'm like, you, "As soon as you hear that voice, it's you know, he he carries his history with him, and there's no getting around that, and that's a, a wonderful thing." And it was we were sitting there having a very on the surface, down to earth chat about just all sorts of matter of fact things, but it's still Robert Redford who's talking to you, and it's still that voice and that presence, and and there's no getting around that, and it's pretty remarkable. But uh, I love that; it was really exciting. <laughs> Fantastic, and then you've also got uh, uh, something I found out about you last night, which is interesting. Is that you're a huge Star Wars fan? I, which I, someone who watches any Dead Body Saints might not be able to discern. It, I'm trying to think if there are any actual Star Wars references in the movie because <laughs> normally I would have done something, but I don't think there are. Um, but yeah, I, I I was too young to see them in the theaters, but I had had them on VHS. I had all the toys. My parents read me the storybooks before I'd ever even seen the movies. It had a profound impact on my life and has set me on the path that I'm on now. And <laughs> and I hope I hope that J.J. Abrams is going to make some good new ones. <laughs> well, of course, you know, you're out of the running for episode seven, but episode eight, episode nine, that's you something that, the ring? you know, I, I've thought about that. I certainly have because my agent's like, oh yeah, we're going to make sure they're, they're aware of you. And I was like, yeah. I almost, you know, this is what JJ said too, which is that he would rather just experience them as an audience member, and the, the, he couldn't resist going to do it. Something and changed his mind. And uh, I don't know. I, 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 right now, I would rather just go watch them and see a good one. Yeah. But if the opportunity came my way, who knows? I would probably be unable to resist uh, getting some <laughs> lightsabers out and playing around with them. Okay, very, very quick fire quiz because we we'll, we'll gotta let you go. Favorite Star Wars film? Empire Strikes Back. Why? I said that I love Texas snow, and I've, I, I'm from I'm from the north, and I'm from the I love the cold, and the fact that that movie starts off in a blizzard uh, that that's not the real reason, but that, that, as a quick answer, I'll, I'll just go with that. Fair enough. Favorite character? God, that, why, this is Darth Vader. <laughs> God, I can't. I, yeah, yeah. When I was five, when people asked me what I wanted to be when I grew up, I would say Darth Vader. So that, that's <laughs> you why. must be the most terrifying five year old on your block. <laughs> I can imagine. Uh, favorite moment. Oddly enough, um, Return of the Jedi, when Yoda dies, was a profound, profoundly impacting mo- moment in my life at mm-hmm. that time, and um, I'm probably the first time I ever like really consciously was aware of what death might mean. So wow. hard to hard to deny that you know, regardless of your feelings about Ewoks and everything else, that that movie <laughs> contains something that, as a child, was profoundly impactful on me. Wow. And uh, last question about Star Wars is pro Jar Jar or anti Jar Jar? I mean, that's not a real question, is it? <laughs> you would you'd be surprised to know there is a growing school of pro Jar Jar advocates. I, when the movie, when Phantom Mist came out, I convinced myself that Jar Jar was awesome, but I was completely lying to myself. <laughs> I think so. And uh, David, we're about to get your picture taken now for a podcast gallery, so people online will be able to see how amazing your moustache is. It is the, I have to say, <laughs> the best tash we've ever had in the Empire Pod booth. Uh, it's, uh, what's the story behind it? It's, I, uh, you know, I, I can't grow hair on the top of my head, but I guess I make up with it somewhere else. <laughs> I, uh, I had a beard at one point. Uh-huh. I was getting pretty, uh, pretty Grizzly Adams-ish. <laughs> and I, 
was like, I need to shave this off. And I started to shave it off and realized that there was a tremendous mustache <laughs> uh, at my disposal. And so, I mean, you'd be shocked at how fast I can grow this thing. So I'm, I'm, I'm jealous because this, I can't, I can't grow facial hair. This is like, the bits don't join up for me. This so. is like two months I can get to oh, this point. Man. It's ridiculous. This is about a year. <laughs> I'm, sadly, I'm not getting either. But brilliant, David. It's been a pleasure, man. Thanks for Such a pleasure. In. Thanks so much. Thank you. Cheers. And now it's time for movie news. Hooray! Whee! Congratulations for making it this far. Yes, well done, everybody. What have we got? What's happened? We're obviously not 100% London-centric. We have listeners from as far away as Bedford. But it would be derelict of us not to mention the London Film Festival uh, in October. Between the dates of October 9th and the 20th, yesterday was the lineup announcement. We probably all knew that um, Paul Greengrass's Captain Phillips with Tom Hanks is opening the festival on the 9th, the big jamboree and Tom Hanks is back again to close it um, 12 days later with Saving Mr. Banks Saving Mr. Banks exactly and it's jam packed full of uh, movie joys between those two dates um, Alfonso Cuaron's Gravity Steve McQueen's 12 Years a Slave Inside Lewin Davis the Coen Brothers latest Stephen Frears Philomena Jason Reitman's Labour Day uh, Ray Fine's second uh, directorial feature The Invisible Woman about Charles Dickens and uh, I went down yesterday to the launch and had a little chat with uh, Paul Greengrass about the rumours of him returning with Matt Damon for the Fifth Born instalment, which had been kind of mooted out there on the internet ether. And uh, he told me that there was literally no truth in that whatsoever. Um, he didn't know where those rumours had emanated from. And that the last time that he and Matt Damon had had a conversation about it was, in his words, a long time ago. Um, they speak about it in jest or just as a sort of nostalgic catch-up, I think, more regularly, but they hadn't really talked about it as a serious project for a long time. So there was some excitement, I think, for a little while that, that they may be contemplating getting back involved, that Universal wanted them to be, you know, bring them back. That's to not a surprise. I mean, get involved yeah. because, the yeah, the, the Jeremy Renner incarnation, Born Legacy, didn't do brilliantly, but it has done well enough to launch a fifth movie. Um, so well, it's clear what they want to happen, isn't it? They, they clearly want Jason Bourne to show up in this movie alongside uh, Aaron Cross. That was his name, wasn't it? Yeah, yes, Aaron, Aaron Cross. Um, so, but I just can't see that happening because Matt Damon's been very, very firm on the "I won't do this by Paul Greengrass." And Paul Greengrass has been very firm on the "There's no story there, guys. We can't. We've tried. We did three of them." Mm. Well, we, we two of them, but we've exhausted all possibilities. Well, there was no story for them before this last film, and this last film now presumably adds an extra level of sort of guff for them to get through to get another story going, where mm. they have to weave it back in with the Iron Cross story, which wasn't really that dynamic. Although they were very careful to weave Bourne into the background of that film. You know, I mean, that was obvious. So, But Universal have denied it, and Paul Greengrass has said that it's he doesn't have any idea where that came from. So unfortunately for those people that are looking for another instalment of his, don't hold your breath. Indeed. Uh, and if you are interested in attending the London Film Festival this year, we are very excited here at Empire. We have, uh, for the second year, we have the uh, our very own gala. The Empire Gala this year is the Laugh Gala. It is a comedy. Uh, we're delighted to announce it is Joseph Gordon-Levitt's directorial debut, Don John, which co-stars with Julianne Moore and Scarlett Johansson. And amazingly, Tony freaking Danza. Uh, and the film is, I haven't seen it, but apparently it is fantastic. So uh, tickets flat go on sale on September 20th, which incidentally is my birth if you want to send me anything. Tickets for that? No, I can get tickets for that. Hmm. Tickets for something else. You can buy yeah, tickets tic- for no. all 234 films from the festival. Yes, get me tickets for all 234 films. That would be my challenge. I will write a hot-button blog about it. 
uh, and then I will die of exhaustion. Presumably. So that's what that's what I will do, even though I'm on holiday for a part of the festival. Okay. Happy birthday for then, Chris. Speaking of calling bullshit on things, Helen, you've got a story which is calling bullshit on things. I do, yes. I have a Benedict Cumberbatch double bill, so make sure you're sitting down, especially a ladies. A Cumberbatch bill? A, dumber, a double batch? A double batch. A dumber bill? Anywho, um, Benedict Cumberbatch was linked earlier this week to Star Wars Episode Seven, presumably because it's so hot right now and he's so hot right now. Uh, so they were, they were speculating he was going to be Han Solo's son or whatever. Nobody seemed to care. They just cared that he would be in it. Um, this is essentially based on the fact that he dropped out of Guillermo del Toro's Crimson Peak without an obvious schedule clash on his on his table, and also that he has worked with J.J. Abrams before. And of course, J.J. does you know go back to the same kind of repertoire company and and recast people so it's it's all terribly plausible sadly his rep- representatives have denied it entirely um so it all seems to be so much rumor but there is good news uh, for those who who thought that he might you know take a break because god forbid that he should do that he is instead going to be starring in the lost city of z or z depending on which which side of the atlantic you're on it's been in development for absolutely ages plan b and brad pitt have been working on it um it's based on david gran who's of course a great writer for the new yorker based on his bestseller and it's uh set in 1925 uh, so basically he plays percy fawcett possibly the only name in cinema history that matches benedict cumberbatch percy fawcett headed off into brazil's amazon jungle in on a mapping quest in 1925 and came back a with malaria and B claiming to have discovered uh, the mythical city of that he called Z. Um, so everybody kind of made fun of him. It's very up so far. Everyone made fun of him and said that he was telling porkies. And so he gathered up his son and some friends and basically headed back into the jungle and was never seen again. So that's the, the that's the setup for this one. Um, that'll be James Gray directing, and it all sounds kind of interesting. But it does look like he's serious and he will not be going to a galaxy far, far away. James Gray, who's the who's the man there? James Gray, he's the guy who did uh, The Yards, most famously, and We Own the Night. Um, he had The Immigrant this year. That was his film of this year. So this will be due, I guess, late 2014, probably 2015. Uh, I think one thing James Gray's involvement in this means, and obviously the story seems to be quite bleak and austere, is that it's not going to be a laugh a minute because James Gray is a fantastic filmmaker, but he don't do the lols. So no, he doesn't, does he? Really? Yeah, I think we can we can safely say that given that they never emerged from the jungle, that's probably a bit of a bad sign. This might have an Aguero Wrath of God kind of a feel to it, uh, which would be no bad thing. And, and frankly, I hope it does. Okay, Although okay. that had laughs, so maybe this will too. <laughs> maybe it will, as he dies of malaria and everyone around him dies horribly. Um, yeah, Ali. Strap yourself in. It's going to be a humpy ride. Dakota Johnson has been cast as Anastasia Steele in Fifty Shades of Grey. I see what you did there. Do you? I wish you hadn't. I'm so not sorry. And <laughs> Charlie Hunnam will play Christian Grey. Helen, you are our official spanksbert <laughs> oh God. in the office. Could you explain to me each individual shade? Yeah, well, we've got sort of gunmetal, pigeon. Oh, no, I'm kidding. Uh, Fifty Shades of Grey is the story. Story is a word I use loosely. um, Of Anastasia Steele, who's a graduate uh, from college and a virgin. And she goes to, she's sent by her college magazine to interview 
ultra handsome 28 year old billionaire Christian Grey and uh, gets a bit flustered and they flirt a bit and uh, he decides he quite fancies her but there's a catch he's totally into S&M and he wants her to sign a contract to become his submissive and she's a bit oh I don't know about it but he's totally won over by his total studliness and then uh, decides that maybe she should think about it so along the way they have loads and loads of sex is the book and there are three books in this series essentially an excuse for people to read words that describe sex yes how will this work as a film considering that in order for this to do that justice it would have to be an xxx i genuinely don't know they've hired sam taylor johnson to direct it uh and and she obviously has a very good reputation for you know serious thoughtful provoking work but i genuinely don't know how you make anything out of that silly stupid shallow material that isn't silly stupid and shallow don't hold back now the scriptwriter is the same scriptwriter that we will uh, see the work of in Saving Mr. Sp- uh, Banks. Um, <laughs> she's she's called Kelly Marcel. So there is. I'm encouraged by this. Not yeah. that we should really go. Oh, then it'll be good. Oh, then it'll be bad. But this is encouraging. It's not a another. Funnily enough, I spoke to one of the producers of the movie, uh, Mike DeLuca, who's producing it along with uh, Dana Brunetti, and they're the guys who did Social Network and Moneyball. So they're prestige directors who like to do prestige Oscar friendly material and they're also doing Captain Phillips which is why I spoke to Mike Toluca but I asked him at the end because the casting news had just broke about how it all worked out and were they planning to go you know how far they were planning to go with the sex scenes because it's you know it's very explicit in the books from what I've read from my wife's shoulder and uh uh, honest, I didn't just borrow it. Sure, uh, sure. Yeah, I, I'm honest. Uh, and uh, obviously it's very, very explicit in the books. They're not going to do that on film. No actor, I think, worth their salt or a name actor would, would certainly commit to real sex or really, really, really explicit sex. So it's not going to be an NC-17. It's going to be an R-rated movie. So I think it's going to be relatively coy. I think we'll probably see a level of nudity from the stars that we might not be used to in this day and age in a, in a mainstream movie I think Dakota Johnson and Charlie Hunnam are hitting the gym right now but uh, I don't think we're going to see anything that's going to shock anyone in case you're wondering who the heck is a Dakota Johnson when she's at home she is a relative unknown she's not like totally unknown she wasn't just found somewhere uh, she's appeared in smaller roles uh, than this one certainly uh, in 21 Jump Street The Social Network and The Five Year Engagement she's a very pretty lady but this could be I feel either the thing that begins her career and will make her the best known person in the world or could make her a byword for wow that was a risk that didn't pay off it's uh, Elizabeth Berkeley and Showgirls uh, in that sense I think yeah there's always a huge risk especially for actresses doing this kind of a role because audiences tend to punish you a little bit I think for for being a bit too sexually explicit I mean listen I I will I'm obviously going to end up seeing this film for work apart from anything else and if they can make something good out of it I will be hugely impressed and more power to them I think they've got an uphill struggle on their hands but they've clearly got the right ingredients in, in terms of you know Sam Taylor Johnson Kelly Marcel these producers a lot of you Johnsons know, in this movie a lot of Johnsons in this movie um and, uh, and you know, Charlie Hunnam is not bad casting for Christian Grey. I think people were hoping for Matt Bomer, who, according to Brett Easton Ellis, according to E.L. James, was never in the running except in the fans' minds. Um, but, you know, I think they can make them look the part. And if they make a good script for this, then, then maybe there's something there. It's an interesting uh, topic as well, because uh, on Twitter the other day when E.L. James announced a casting on her Twitter feed, it was interesting because Twitter went mental for about two hours as it always does when 
huge casting news breaks but it was interesting because it was a bit like Batfleck all over again there yeah. were loads of this is this film these, these books have got an enormous fan base uh, we obviously are not part of the fan base but for the most part they were overwhelmingly negative towards these casting choices uh, and I've seen some of them turn around Dana Brunetti for example does retweet an awful lot of people who are now saying oh yeah now I've had 24 hours to sleep on it yeah I, th- I think these casting choices are okay but also interestingly was the number of people who were on our feed the Empire feed going I don't care about this I'm never going to see this movie I don't care about it and even if I do go see the movie I've made my mind up now this movie is going to suck and it's going to suck big time and I think they've got an awful lot to do to win those people around those people of course ironically probably won't watch the movie but they will watch the best bits on a certain website uh, six months after it comes out what uh, website a, a porn website oh I see Phil you're adorable <laughs> I thought I thought we were going to be hosting them perhaps <laughs> yeah well, yeah or we'll just recreate them uh, but it's interesting you look at the people who were linked with the role apparently were offered the role and turned it down we talked about this in the past that A-list stars or stars close to the A-list wouldn't have gone for something like this, I don't think. Okay, let's move on to something else <laughs> entirely different. Bradley Cooper has been confirmed for Guardians of the Galaxy as, can you guess? Rocket Raccoon, yay! Yes, the character that everyone is slowly coming to terms with as a genuine... Coming to terms with? I love this character. I love this character. What do you mean coming to terms with? It's not... It's not. He's a raccoon, he's got a rocket, what the hell yeah. more do you want? He's a genetically and mechanically altered critter. For most people, Rocket Raccoon sounds silly. Who are these people? That's all I'm saying. Anyway, that's who Bradley Cooper mm. is voicing. It is not Adam Sandler, as some people have suggested. I'm filing that under the Eddie Murphy for the Riddler in the Dark Knight Rises rumour. But that's interesting bin. because this is a character and this is a movie that, from the off, Marvel has seemed to be pushing down the comedic route. Not entirely, you know, but Chris Pratt, who's a very funny man, is the star of the movie, a Star-Lord. It's got a director who's uh, James Gunn, is renowned for, for comedies. And uh, when they were talking about Adam Sandler uh, or another comedian being the voice of Rocket Raccoon, you were thinking, oh, this is going to be Marvel's first really almost out-and-out comedy. Kevin Feige has pulled away from that in recent weeks, saying it it, has comedic elements, but it is an all-out space drama at the same time. And we're really, really going for it. And the casting of Bradley Cooper, who is known for comedies, but obviously recently Oscar nominated for dramas indicates that they're going down a more serious route. And I think he's a really kind of cool choice. I think, you know, you want Rocket Raccoon to be a cool character, um, not just a comedic one. You know, you want him to have a bit of an edge to him, and I think that's probably what they've gone for a little bit. Um, I think I think it's going to be comedic in the same way that maybe, you know, the Indiana Jones or the Star Wars movies are comedic at moments. I think it's going to have that sort of level of wry wit about it rather than, you know, all out kind of pratfall routines or anything like that I think it's I think it is going to have a really thick vein of comedy running through it but maybe but it, the, the adventure and the epicness is definitely going to be there as well cool it's got Vin Diesel as a tree right so not, confirmed, not confirmed yet, we, think, yes. we think he's playing a tree in this a tree who says only three he's words he's taking that seriously he'll be standing in a forest for six months to prepare for that role yes I'm sure he is uh, he, he might play Groot who is a, a, a tree like character uh, who says only three words I am Groot. Only an inflection. So when you're looking for a an actor who can bring nuance and subtlety to a role, to inflections, you think of Finn Diesel. Could you just say the words, I am Groot again? I am Groot? I am Groot. I was hesitant to say this one, the last bit of my little news roundup, but it is a big deal. A big, possibly fire-breathing, incredibly metallic, clunky deal. The Dinobots. Yes! who you may or may not know are part of the Transformers universe, i.e. robots that turn into 
robots that look like dinosaurs yes have been confirmed as appearing in transformers 4 and in addition to that fact transformers 4 is now called transformers age of extinction is it called transformers age of extinction suck at age of ultron is that what they're because it seems to me that that's a bit of a spoiler title thing I'd be interested to know if if this movie was called Age of Extinction a month ago. (laughs) You know what I mean? Yeah, it's an interesting point. I hadn't thought of it that way. But uh, it's it's happening. You will see, I would guess, the uh, Dinobots that are called... I learnt this by writing the story and finding out. uh, In (laughs) Japan... Oh, yeah, honestly. uh, In Japan, they're called Dinotrons, which I prefer. Okay. We we are the Dinotrons. Do you know the uh, the names of the... Are you ready for them? Uh Uh-huh. I used to have some when I was a kid, so I know a couple. So, Grimlock, he's, mm-hmm. he's a T-Rex. He's, he's awesome. A, he's a team leader. Slag. Uh, come on now. Who's a Triceratops. Cover your ears. <gasps> and Sludge, who's an Apatosaurus. That's a stupid name. <laughs> Snarl, who's a Stegosaurus. Swoop, who is a Pteranodon. Oh. And this is a guy only in the comic books, but Paddles, who is an Elasmosaurus. And what's the story behind the Dinobots? They are robots who are dinosaurs. Yes, but... You know, are they, do they land on Earth millions of years ago and then are frozen or something? Is that why they looked at dinosaurs? Or did they land in the Natural History Museum? What, what's your story? Why do they, why do they look at the dinosaurs? I repeat my previous statement. They are robots that look like dinosaurs. What more do you want from me? I'm sorry. I shouldn't be questioning this. I shouldn't be bringing logic to this. Do That's not bring logic to the robot dinosaur party. That's good news, isn't it? We're all excited about that. I, you know what? If they get this right, if they get this insane, if they get this totally nutsoid, I cannot believe I'm seeing what I'm seeing, robots that look like dinosaurs. I am in. We were talking about this yesterday, Chris, like in every Transformers movie, love it, hate it, whatever, there is almost always a 10 to 15 minute burst of wow. And if they can have that uh, with robot dinosaurs, more power to them. Yeah, no, uh, yeah, I I, I agree. I wasn't a big fan of Transformers uh, 3. Dark of the Moon, Transformers Dark of the Moon. I wasn't a fan of Transformers Revenge of the Fallen. But that said, you're absolutely right. There are moments like the, the, the skyscraper sequence at the end of Dark of the Moon where skyscrapers falling over and people are sliding down. You go, I haven't seen that before. And Michael Bay is one of the few directors who can pull off something like that. And if you can pull off... Stop sniggering. If you can pull off slag and whatnot, then, uh, then yeah, I'm there. Uh, is that it? We done? We're done. Is no one going to talk about the news that David Walliams has been cast as a voice of Pudsy in the Pudsy movie? No. <laughs> no. I no think you just covered it. That? You covered it. I think that's all we need to talk about. All right. Moving on. Our next guests on the podcast are the stars of Ron Howard's Formula One drama Rush, which tells a true life tale of the rivalry on and off the track between James Hunt and Nicky Lauda. They're played in the film by Chris Hemsworth, our current cover star in his other guise as Thor, and Daniel Bruhl, who isn't on our cover at the moment which is a bit awkward uh, anyway Ali went along to talk to them recently and had a grand old time hello and welcome to the Empire Podcast I'm just going to double check that I get your name right Daniel is it Brule? yeah or Brule it's Brule actually Brule <laughs> but you can say Brule okay cool sweet, yeah. mine's Chris nailed it nailed it Hemsworth Hemsworth now be honest with me before you got involved with Rush before you looked at the script before you got started how into cars were you were you Mario Kart or Scalectrix or full on petrol head Scalectrix Scalectrix yeah Scalectrix oh, yeah complicated word and a bit of Mario Kart actually that was, I remember playing that yeah I wasn't a, I wasn't really into cars my dad used to race motorbikes and so I, you know that adrenaline fueled kind of lifestyle was I think you know, as a kid growing up, we had bikes and dirt bikes, and it was around that. But um, not not cars, you know. And I didn't really have an appreciation for them until, you know, 
doing this film and mm. being able to drive these things, which was uh, dangerous and exciting and you know quite tricky too. The you know clutch accelerator transition and is you can't baby them. And one of the mechanics said, you know, you got to drive it like you stole it, and they're not meant to be driven slowly. You know, he said you've got to they've got to be you got to drive them aggressive, and that was a, the best piece of advice I think. <laughs> Now, you're, you're both doing accents in this film. Were there any trigger words that you used to get into the voice, to get it just right? Asshole. 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 Uh-huh. <laughs> I can't remember. Not really. I had kind of word lists and interviews of him that I would you know, listen to and go through and kind of... I'm trying to think if there was one in particular. Was a <laughs> Asshole. <laughs> just, uh... There's a stand-up moment for me where you deliver, obviously, in a very James Bond way, Hunt. James Hunt. James Hunt. Yeah. <laughs> it did feel. Yeah. Like, the first time I read it, I was like, oh, hang on, this does feel very. <laughs> Bond. James Bond. <laughs> it just felt right. I felt that when you're on set, you were enjoying yourself. We had a hell of a time. And then, of course, uh, this is somebody else says it, but you, your character, James Hunt, was referred to as an immortal fuck. <laughs> <laughs> Which is just a great phrase. Not using enough. Phrase. Not, not a bad uh, tag to follow you around, is it? <laughs> I don't know whether you guys are Top Gear fans, but. Yeah. Ron Howard, he got into Top Gear, mm-hmm. but you guys didn't. Yeah. We didn't. But, and I was just saying yesterday, looking at the schedule for the next couple of days, I said, why are we not doing Top Gear? Because it was mm-hmm. the moment we did this film, we were around a lot of the guys involved in that show. and uh, That's why you did the film, right? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. <laughs> I mean I, to be honest, Top Gear is probably my biggest, uh, uh, I don't know, or uh, was my biggest sort of introduction to cars and racing and my only kind of or had been my only sort of you know resource you know prior to this but we were both shooting and, and couldn't do it and I thought oh, what a shame because it, if the two of us could get out there and then race each other and then what a yeah. hell of a time we would have had <laughs> but, but you know put a, a few old scores to bed yeah I was going to say was there was there rivalry between your actual selves in terms of obviously these weren't real F1 cars but they can still hit 100 miles an hour. Is that with any actual rivalry? Every second. Every second. <laughs> You're lucky we're sitting in this room together. Yeah. <laughs> no, fortunately there wasn't. No. Uh, no. There was all... I mean, we are very different. Uh, we come from a very different culture. He's a... I always said in, in German interviews, he's a laid-back Australian surfer <laughs> kind of guy, and uh, but not competitive, uh, humble, and uh, yeah yeah and and funny and that was so it was easy to work with him and that's uh, and I think it's important for the for the last part of the movie for the last scene for instance that underneath all that rivalry there is that you know connection mm. there is that mutual respect and curiosity and uh, I felt it with with Chris I don't know about him but <laughs> yeah I can't, I can't agree but um, <laughs> thanks for that no. <laughs> I remember the first time we had a, a read through and hearing I mean, I was a fan of his work anyway, but then hearing Daniel, you know, start doing the accent and, and the, the cadence and, and, and I was like, oh my God, that's Nicky Lauda. And I'm not James Hunt. I'm, I'm so far from getting it yet. And we're weeks in, in the rehearsals. And I thought, shit, you know. And it was like a kick in the ass to kind of, you know, <laughs> get on top of things. And, and um, yeah, look, occasionally you get lucky like we did and, and, and the, you work with people who are just as enthusiastic and, and open and uh, ego less as, as you know uh, uh, you know as the group is and and um 
you know, it allowed us then to have a very, uh, we, we'd explore the scene and go, okay, what if we try this and how about take it this way? Instead of both of us posturing and saying, no, no I'm doing my version of it in the mirror to myself and you can do whatever the hell you want, you know. You make the assumption that if we didn't get along, that would somehow benefit the rivalry on screen, but it's the opposite. It just ends up, you know, you limit yourself to the sort of places you can go and, and uh, you know, Daniel certainly yeah, made me pick up Yeah, Ron didn't... Cr- want to create that atmosphere no, either. No. I mean, sometimes you have directors who like that, you yeah, know, to impose that, that and, and, and create this atmosphere. Bullshit, <laughs> but, yeah. you know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> there is one connection, and maybe I'm, I'm leaping here, but you were both got your big breaks when you first first got started in Soaps. Yeah, I, I didn't know you did, no. Yeah, you were on I Home and Away. Neighbours? <laughs> <laughs> Neighbours? Let me guess. <laughs> <laughs> I was Home and Away. <laughs> Although you were in one episode of Neighbours as well, I think. I was, actually, yeah. There you go, crossing the streams. I'm trying to remember what my name was in that. <laughs> you, know, you know what, actually, in that, that was like one of my first jobs was Neighbours, and, and I remember the, I worked at a mechanics you know, shop, and I'd, just after it'd been robbed, I had to walk in and stay, say to one of the lead actresses, you know, Stephanie, did, did you call the police? Oh, and then pick up the phone and say hello police and later i'm like is that what you do hello police like <laughs> yeah, <I> mean, <laughs> they have a direct line on this phone. Called? <laughs> um, yeah. we should actually show it to one another one oh, day we, we have to meet you know have dinner and then, you know <laughs> drop our pants <laughs> because yours is called forbidden love yes which was it yeah. <laughs> isn't that a great name <laughs> In Germany, in Germany. How, how do you say forbidden love in German? Verbotene Liebe. For, for Verbotene Liebe. It wow. feels more forbidden with German. <sighs> yeah. It, it, and forbidden. I, I, but, but I think they, yeah, they called it forbidden love to make it more, you know, they, 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 yeah. <laughs> Punk kid with a rat on my shoulder. Really? I was like, yeah, I was, I was, a, I was a nasty kid. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> this is terrible. terrible. That's awesome. Does that feel like yesterday or like no, 10 years ago? Like 200 years ago. It, feel, it was my, it feels like high school to me. I have a better memory and... I think a more vivid memory of that experience, you know, as I did high school. I didn't mm. enjoy high school and was, you know, couldn't wait to get out of there. Home and Away was like, I was 19, I was on the beach and filming and in a different state and it was my James Hunt kind of experience, you know. <laughs> that was my version of, of that existence, you know, or <laughs> not quite. But, you know, and we used to shoot 20 scenes a day and oh, it, was, uh, it, was, it was great though. It's kind of my foundation and I have a huge amount of respect for it and I think people like to, you know, talk down to that stuff but it is the hardest stuff everything is you know you have every luxury in the world on a film set you know from you know the best writers and directors and everything and and then you know i mean there's there's great writers and directors you know working on the show but everything is on on the clock you know mm. and it's it's a the factory you know yeah and, uh, and if you do a bad take and that's what they take that's, that's it, it. That's, that's what's on screen yeah so you kind of sink or swim it was it's a good learning curve how did you go about getting the roles? Because I gather the writer, Peter Morgan, put you up for the role, Daniel. Is that right? Yeah, I, I think so. That's what I was told. After, but in the audition, he was the toughest one. I met Ron, uh, Peter and Andrew, and I felt comfortable with, with Ron and, and Andrew. Mm. And for the first 10 minutes, Peter was always looking at the ceiling the whole time. And then um, I felt I, I felt good after half an hour because I, I got half an hour with, 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 with all of them. And then I was sitting there for an hour. So I thought, well, this is, this is, this is working. And then I got, you know, a bit uh, too self-confident. And I, uh, uh, I just invented a, uh, an Austrian accent because I hadn't worked on the, on the, on the accent. And then I just said to Ron, listen to the difference, you know. And, I just, and then Peter all of a sudden answered in polished German, Viennese German for the first time. 
that this accent was bullshit. So uh, that, yeah, that was his words. Yeah, in German, you know. I said, and then I said, "Are you speak German?" I said, "Of course I do." You know, I live in Vienna. We know I'm married too, and I know Nikki for a long time. And I thought, okay, that was it. Oh, I said, wow, you know. I didn't know that. And so he said, "Yeah, yeah, bye, 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 bye." But he was the he was the toughest one. I actually, I had the same thing. I mean, yeah. in the best way. But he was kind of the authority on these characters. You know, <laughs> the story. You know. <laughs> And and I from the beginning I felt he was he was the guy I had to kind of convince. Him. Yeah, you know, and I I, I don't know, mate. He's just very protective of his writing and yeah. what an amazing script and he wrote and rightfully right. so. But it's um, it's, I didn't know that story. That's yeah, awesome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> was it you, Chris? Who was who sent the tape in? You're on the yeah. set of Avengers and you sent your tape in. Yeah, it's funny. We all keep saying I keep saying tape as well. Like VH, VHS tape. Like yeah, exactly. Years ago. <laughs> Betamax. <laughs> Yeah, it was. A, it wasn't a tape. It was. A, it was a, a laser disc. Yeah. <laughs> no, but I keep saying that. I'm like, I sent it a tape, and I'm like, a tape. When's the last time you used a tape? It was. Yeah, I'd read the script, loved the script. It was a no-brainer as far as working with uh, with Ron, and but I knew everyone was going to be, you know, in line for this thing, and and that was the case, and uh, and I just wanted to kind of attempt to jump the queue you know because they were like yeah well when you're in town next you know we'll set you up for the meeting and I was like nah I'm not waiting for that and I, I recorded a scene and, and sent it off and thankfully he responded and, and we got on the phone and then it kind of took off from there James Hunt would have done a tape and would have sent it that way so that's right and a lot of my kind of I think process in this film was about what James had done you know and the, uh, some, you know Jerry Grinnell actually was my the voice coach in this he kept reminding me of that he's like well, every time I'd worry about something, I'd go, well, what would James think? You know, that's it. You'd bugger it. You know, go yeah. for it. it. Who cares what they say or what he thinks? Or, you know, and um, yeah. Making a movie about F1 work is so difficult technically. You've got to you've got to make people feel like they're in the cars. They've got to feel like they they know what's going on, who's in front of who. When you watched it for the first time, were there moments where you went, "Damn, I look cool," and I had <laughs> no idea it would look that good? It's uh... all the way through. Yeah, when um, I saw myself <laughs> when I saw in the mirror, <laughs> mm. it's that line you're almost famous with, you know, just make us look cool. And uh, <laughs> he says to the journalist, you know, um, uh, Anthony Don Mantle, who shot this thing. I mean, the, the film just looks stunning. The lighting and the visuals and this thing, and where he placed cameras around the chassis and the body of the car was incredible. And, and uh, yeah, there's plenty of things that, that you know, you watch it. And it's you know all of a sudden it's you in the car and you're standing back seeing it from the outside mm. for the first time and you go wow that's that's, uh, that's us in there and you know slightly yeah. dramatized and <laughs> it gave me a little uh, overconfidence in my driving skills which is dangerous. <laughs> that's a general thing. I mean, I talked to Ron about you know uh, shooting uh, on uh, shooting digital and. Um, First of all, a lot of DOP said that it's, you know, the, the, the quality of digital becomes better and better, so that's very uh, hard to tell the difference. And then Anthony also used the, you know, the, the, the benefits that you would have from shooting digital, making use of these tiny little cameras mm. uh, and, and put them in the helmet. Beautiful shots with you where you just see the eye and then the yeah. very background, you know, and that's, that's amazing. Or uh, a camera right by the engine block or, uh, mm -hmm. or you know, it's... Um, he used it's, it's, lenses from the 70s as well. Give it a feel and a look, mm -hmm. and, and put them oh. on the yeah. on the on the on the modern camera. Yeah. yeah. Wow. You, I gather, it was at Long Cross. You burst a tire. That yeah, was, it just fell off. It just, yeah. What? It just popped off. Yeah. yeah. Someone know, had I, loosened I, the screws. I have some. <laughs> I, I have my suspicions. That, uh, Sabotage. Really? Uh, yeah. Chris Hemsworth. I'm, I'm on his the team hunt might have it. <laughs> manipulated it. Well, I'm on the hunt to find out who it is. Yeah. yeah. Pun intended. There. Wink. 
Yep. So, mm-hmm. But I was um, the other side of the, we're in a parking lot kind of practicing, pulling in the pits and, you know, and then, you know, big turns and, and burnouts and whatever. And Daniel's doing some big turn and we're watching from the sidelines and his tyre comes off and goes bouncing into sort of a group of people and, you know, and sort of dives out the way. And then the, his car starts kind of bouncing on the axle and, and inches from tipping over and, you know, there's Daniel's head protruding from the top of the vehicle, which would have would have done a nice smash up to his head. <laughs> we almost didn't need a prosthetic makeup then. The idea of a tire actually bouncing like some kind of runaway yeah. killing machine, yeah, crazy. And I was wondering whether once Nicky had first seen the film, did he give you one of his courteous thumbs up, good goods, or was it just uh... good, good? Yeah, he got emotional. I mean, he's not an emotional man, but but he he got quite emotional because he said uh, it was strange for him to see uh, himself. Uh, but from outside and and to relive uh, especially these moments around the uh, the accident and the actual accident because he doesn't have any memory of that day you know he doesn't remember the accident yeah. at all you know, it's just erased completely yeah you know to, as, a, as a self-defense you know so he's not reliving it he's living it he's living it yeah, yeah. for the first time actually because wow. he said the only thing he had seen was that footage of the boy who shot it and in fact that's uh, um, I think four or five times in the film it's original archive there's a, there's a, there's a little moment where mm-hmm. that original Super 8 material of that, of that boy and that was the only thing he, he, he had seen from the accident but still he didn't remember anything so he said it was tough to, to, to see that you know? yeah I can imagine um, now I hesitate to do this but it's a very rare occasion and Daniel don't take it as a slight but Chris you are on our front cover right now you are on Empire's front cover right now really? Yeah, I'm going to show it to you just very briefly. Why? Because this looks... I know why. Why? Why? (laughs) I don't understand. Who is this guy? (laughs) Okay, I'm going to give Daniel this one. (laughs) Okay, I'm not trying to encourage any more rivalry here. (laughs) Yeah, that's him. um, That that looks like Chris, right? Oh, look at this. Now, we're not here to promote another movie, obviously. But I thought, how often do you actually have someone on the front cover while you interview them. So that's a present. Wow, thank you, today, today, Daniel, you can be Loki. I don't know why, but there you go. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's mad. Thanks, buddy. The one scary thing is that, you know, we were doing a which cover do you want, right? We had a poll. This is embarrassing. You know he's on Twitter, mm. and you know he's got an army. Yeah. What oh, would you guess sure. is the percentage between voting for you and your front cover or voting for Tom's front cover? Uh, are you trying to depress me now? Just a little bit, just a little depression. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure he's 100% or something. He is 70%. Yeah, of course you need, he is. You need to get on social media. Nah, I don't. I like to think I'm uh, going to be the, the odd one out with that, but the truth is I'm just too lazy to keep <laughs> up with it. I totally agree. Yeah. <laughs> are you on Twitter? <laughs> are you agree with Loki? Yeah. <laughs> He, he was one voting over oh, and over. I'd vote for Loki. I'd, was vote, for I'd, I'd vote for Tom. <laughs> Too bad under Tom's photo it says Thor. But yeah. e. E. gotcha. Good point. Yeah, yeah. But finally, just to touch in on what you guys are doing next. Now we've got the WikiLeaks movies coming out soon. Mm-hmm. It's an ongoing story, isn't that a bit peculiar? That your the film that you're in is kind of still going in real life. Yeah, it's fascinating. I've never done a movie which you know is dealing with the subject was so relevant and and and. Uh, uh, and important at the moment. It is strange because we we gonna find out the truth somewhere. But you know, I, I'm I'm happy that the movie excludes all the speculation. It just focuses on that friendship and on on that 
certain time when when you know WikiLeaks became big, they were overwhelmed. These two guys, uh, Julian Assange and Daniel Dobrzebek, my character, were overwhelmed by the, the the amount of information and leaks they had, and they split. And then, uh, uh, you know, uh, it's it it has a similar dynamic like the social network, but it is good because it is a legitimate approach, and it's not an anti WikiLeaks film. I'm mm. very happy with it. Yeah. You better hear it. A very difficult topic. And are you going back to Hong Kong for cyber? Is that right? No, I finished. I got off the, Hong Kong, uh, Kuala Lumpur, Jakarta, and I just finished yesterday. I got off the plane from Kuala Lumpur uh, yesterday morning, yesterday afternoon, uh, and straight here. And um, and you're still alive. Yeah, uh, barely. I got it wrong in, in an interview, and I, and I heard uh, Chris from Kuala Lumpur, and I said, "No, he's Australian." <laughs> I just got it wrong. I said, and then he's I found out that he is. In Kuala How stupid can you be? I said, "No, guys, no, 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 no." <laughs> And again, this is my final attempt to cause rivalry here. In the Heart of the Sea, which is a book I read maybe about five, six years ago, mm-hmm. and it was one of those ones where I went, this can't be real. A little bit like this story, actually. I was yeah. like, it can't be real. You're in it. That's a Ron Howard movie. Daniel, what's going on? Was it, was this, didn't get a phone call? Oh, you don't know. There's another project coming uh, later. Oh, really? Too young. Yeah, yes, yes. He's on page 36. <laughs> it's a fascinating story, really. It's, it happened, yeah, it happened in the 30s on the Galapagos Islands. It's based on a true... Um, mm-hmm. It was some freak Germans who, who uh, left to the Galapagos Islands who were the first hippies, actually. So, yeah, it's a fascinating story. He says he's on page 36. I hope it's true. Uh, and he's, he wants to shoot at someone, but uh, I would love it. It's a fascinating character. I've known about this um, about this guy, about this character for a long time, and I didn't know that, that uh, Ron was working on that. What's the name of the book? There's not a book. There's a documentary about them from the 30s, but it's, um, yeah, yeah, it's really fascinating. Um, but there's not a book about them. It's just, Crazy. But it's real. It's a real story. To Google. That's where I'll go. And I'll to find Google. Google. Well, thank you guys for all... Yeah. Such an enjoyable interview, and um, here's the rest of your uh, junketeering. Thank you. Thanks for not voting for cover. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> I'd vote for Tom anyway, so it yeah. just squares that away, doesn't it? No, you don't. Look at him. It looks, looks cool and scary. <laughs> <laughs> They were lovely. I had a really good time with them. I was the last person who'd interviewed them that day, and I think they were quite grateful to be uh, signing out. But it was fun. I did find Chris Hemsworth's eyes startlingly blue. <laughs> I had no idea where to look. Uh, Do you so think he should have been Christian Grey? I think that wouldn't have been a bad shout. I have no mm. idea what he's meant to look like in the books. But there was also the other problem where he had um, gulp. He had three um, shirt buttons undone, Chris Hemsworth. Helen, are you okay? And uh, it's a little warm in here, isn't it? Can mm. we turn the heat down? And, and, and honestly, I had to pick a spot on the wall and just ask my questions to that. <laughs> were you worried your eyes were going to fall into his cleavage? I just, I really hate it when men catch me. Uh, we'll be talking Rush again on next week's show when we'll also have its director, Mr. Ron Howard. Uh, but let's tackle this week's big releases because it is reviews time. Let's start with what promises to be Richard Curtis's last film as director, About Time, in which Donald Gleeson and Rachel McAdams star alongside Bill Nye and a cupboard. I think that's pretty much right, isn't it, Ali? Yes, it is. Uh, pretty much. Just to briefly uh, summarise the plot, after he turns 21, Tim, who is our, who is a hapless Hugh Grant-like hero, uh, as played by Donald Gleeson. Oh, don't, I can't. I don't. Donald. I, I look. I keep looking Dom, at it. Domnal. 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 Yeah. I keep looking at this, and it doesn't make any sense to me. Donald. Donald. Let's see. That's it's spelled Dom. H Nal. Domnal. Dom. Dom. Donald. Domnal. You're a massive racist. Anyway, but 
I'm not the only person who makes this mistake. Donald Gleason himself makes light of this on our iPad edition right now in a very, very funny video. So if you do have an iPad and you do fancy downloading the latest issue of Empire Magazine, then do so now because it is very funny. Anyway, his character Tim turns 21 and on his 21st birthday he's asked into his father's study. And Bill Nighy, who is the coolest cat, I mean both in real life and in this film, he's just a very groovy guy and loves his ping pong, but that's uh, (laughs) another story, uh, invites him into his study and explains to him that in their family, they all, the men that is, have the power to travel through time. There is a slight twist. They can only travel back in their own lives. So there's none of that butterfly effect type nonsense where it affects necessarily too many other people. You can't go and kill Hitler is one of the examples they give. But it does allow you to fix little mistakes. So if you, this is a terrible example, wake up, have marmalade on toast, and then halfway through the toast go, "Mm, no, I fancied marmalade. You just go to a cupboard, you clench your fists, and think about the time you want to jump back to, and you jump back to that time and you have a marmite sandwich. Anyway, that's, again, a terrible example. He decides, Tim, that what he wants to do with this power is to find true love and live life with his true love forever and it to be wonderful. And this, of course, allows for some really lovely, sweet, uh, clever moments where he, he, Richard Curtis takes this gimmick, this, this, this small moment, and turns it into these little comedy sketches where he can say that incredibly embarrassing Ricky Gervais-style thing of, oh, blowjobs and then can go back and make it right. So there's that. But really, this is actually not an out-and-out comedy, and I wouldn't even say it's an out-and-out rom-com. This is much deeper, much more sincere, much more moving than the Richard Curtis that you're thinking of. It is still a Marmite movie. Again, there comes Marmite. It still will divide opinions, and if you love Richard Curtis, you you will love this film, I believe. But if you don't, then don't don't necessarily go and see it. I don't think this is the film that will turn you round on him, but... There is a much, much more to it than the saccharine lovey-doveyness that you know from Love Actually. Yeah, I think there's a really there's a really nice uh, family element to it. Uh, first of all, because Bill Nye you've mentioned Lindsay Duncan as Tim's mum as well, and his sister. You know, there's a there's a whole family thread running through it. It's not all just about the girl, the American girl, inevitably. But also, um, it's it's there's a whole kind of philosophical kind of approach here. It's all you know, as as he gets to grips with his abilities to time travel. It, there's a, there's an an issue of how you how you choose to live your life and how you choose to spend it so maybe he goes through the day once and gets frustrated with finding a seat on the tube or you know all the little things that just go wrong in your life and make you miserable and then relives the same day but with a more sort of philosophical angle on it and and that's just an absolutely you know gorgeous Mm. kind of message to send um and i think you know it's it it verges on preachy at times but i think it largely avoids the schmaltz of something like love actually I think it does suffer from being too long. We seem to be saying this a lot recently, but I think it is too long for what purports to be a rom-com with a little bit of time travel. Uh, Its heart is very much on its sleeve, and it does have those eccentric supporting characters that you're used to Mm. uh, from Richard Curtis movies. Again, you're going to either love that and you're going to hate it. It isn't easy to criticise film. I feel like the for all its love is all you need and love is the centre of of Tim's universe, uh, Rachel McAdams' character is underserved and there's not enough of her. And it isn't Mm. centred on her as much as it is the relationship between Tim and his father, Bill Nighy. And that's where I really got a kick out of it and I really got something out of this film. I walked out with a little tear trickling out of my eye because it it hits that note so well and it's no surprise, I suppose, that uh, Richard Curtis actually lost both his parents whilst this was being both written and shot. 
I was going to say, if it's two love stories, really, isn't it? And I think the second one works probably better than the first. Yeah. The father-son dynamic. I think that's where Richard Curtis' heart is isn't in this film. That's a dynamic I don't think we've really seen from him before. Not really. I, mean, I guess love actually has a certain element of that with, I guess, the Liam Neeson story, but... Not to the same extent as this. No, this is really, really, really moving. There's There's bits of this... You know, especially towards the end of the film, which between those two characters that really get you and um, I think are very relatable. Maybe the problem with a Richard Curtis film now is that there's been so many imitators in the interim, you know, since Four Weddings. We mentioned, I think we mentioned one day, this feels very Richard Curtis. Started for 10, you know. Started for 10. Those, in fact, David Nichols as a writer, I think, is influenced by Richard Curtis's films as much as anything. Yeah. And um, it, it, it's harder for him to find his own space now because he has been so influential. But. Yeah, there's a lot of fun. I like the subsidiary characters in this one probably more than some of his other stuff. I agree. Tom Hollander, I thought, was hilarious. He's fantastic. He's so funny. He's this boozy, boozy playwright kind of misanthrope who is just very, very funny throughout. And there's also a great reunion of um, Uncle Monty and and Withnall, which is, you know, will tickle you if you're into that. You can hear Richard Curtis talking about that mini reunion uh, on our video interviews, which are up on the Empire Online site. I have a lot to say about this film. There's a lot in it. It's certainly not a slight... uh, It is occasionally silly, but it's not a slight silly film. There's there's stuff to it. Uh, Like I said, there's still plenty to uh, criticise it for... And I think some people will walk up going, that was dreadful. It does get tied up in its own logic sometimes. In the third act, there is a trouble with suddenly introducing a new rule to this, which I found quite frustrating. But all in all, I actually really like this film, though I should point out that my girlfriend saw it separately from me and really hated it. So <laughs> uh, it's one Why? of those. Why did she hate it? She hated it because there wasn't enough uh, concentration on the female characters. I got the impression this was probably a four to five hour uh, first cut kind of movie there was a lot deleted and uh, it's a shame because I would like to see more of this world I really enjoyed it uh, just to touch on Donald he is a revelation for me I've not seen him be in the lead actor role before he does at first you have to get used to it there's a Hugh Grant impersonation he does where he gets his accent in I think that's fair to say but you learn as you get to know the character that it's not just that there is more to it and he more than holds his own very charming I would describe him as adorable brilliant this is not a science fiction movie in any way. There is no device. There is no. Uh, there is no technology behind it. There it's is, a cupboard. It's well. It's not even a cupboard. As he gets better at it, he's able to just do it by closing his okay. eyes. The idea is to kind of cut out external distractions. Just clench your fist, close your eyes, and Bob's your uncle. But um, but yeah, it's it, the implication is certainly that you can just do it over as many times as you want. You can take that. You take that information back with you, obviously. We give uh, four stars for about time. Are we not? Are we going to go clench your fists and change it at any point? Or are we happy with that? I'm certainly happy with it, but I, like I say, I can imagine there are people who will walk out clenching their fists for different reasons. Okay, fair enough. But four stars. There you go. Uh, and now Riddick. Yes, almost ten years after the Chronicles of Riddick opened to the sound of people everywhere asking things like, "What the hell is a necromonger? Is that really Judy Dench?" Everyone's favorite Furion is back in a movie that strands Richard B. Riddick on a planet with some evil beasties and some vicious bounty hunters for company. It also has a moment that makes Helen's blood boil. But more on that later on. What are our thoughts on Riddick? Well, let's talk about the first sort of two thirds of Riddick, which I think we're probably in agreement on first. Uh, so the the idea is that Riddick is left for dead on a barren and very hostile planet. Uh, he was told he was being taken to Furia, uh, the world uh, on which he was born. Mm. He ends up on, as he puts it, not, not Furia. Furia. And so he has to struggle to survive. He has to learn the ways of the local predators and, of course, defeat them one by one, uh, which he does rather handily in the first sort of third. 
Then he discovers a, a sort of mercenary way station with an emergency beacon and decides to essentially hail a cab by activating the beacon and getting some bounty hunters to come because, and get him. Because, to be fair, he has seen a threat that's on the horizon. He that, has. That means he needs to go off the planet Sharpish. Yes. With his super googly eyes. With his super googly eyes, mm. uh, which I think is the technical term. Just so we know, I mean, not everyone has watched Pitch Black, but what is it about his eyes? Um, he has had what's called a shine job on his eyes, uh, which means that he can see in the dark. Anyway, so he had, he had a shine job. He can see in the dark, which is yeah. very useful in Pitch Black. Very. Um, <laughs> doesn't seem to be so useful in the Chronicles of Riddick, and it's not hugely useful in this one, although there are moments when it does come into play. Yeah. Um, but yes, continue, Helen. So the two mercenary teams arrive. One is very bad, and it's led by Hordy Mola, and the other one is slightly less bad, and it's led by Matt Nabel. And they're fighting over who should get to get bring Riddick back, and Riddick, of course, has other ideas. And then the last third of the movie, there's a, a new and terrifying threat from the planet itself. Yes, it's essentially three films in one. So you first you get the uh, you get Riddick on his own fighting lots of evil CG beasties and making friends with a CG wolf in the first 25 minutes. The which dog I, is great. The dog is great. I thought I had a lot of fun with that that, that first yeah. first third. Uh, it's it's Finn Diesel on his own, and he kind of reminds you that there's a reason why I like Finn Diesel. There's a reason why yeah. I like this character. Um, uh, and that's fun. And then the bounty hunter stuff. The bounty hunters arrive. Uh, and if their interplay had been slightly sharper, if it had been slightly better written, then it would have been really fun. Uh, it's a remake of it. I'm basically just regurgitating my review now. But that's essentially Predator, but with mm. Vin Diesel as a Predator. So he's picking them off one by one. They're beginning to infight amongst themselves. And uh, he's barely seen in that. He's glimpsed on the, uh, on the outskirts, on, you know, on the edge of the frame. And that one is very much almost a stalker slash movie. Uh, and that returns him to the sort of... Uh, the position that he held in Pitch Black, where he you know, the the thing about Riddick and this, I think this might play into the the thing that you're really angry about, yeah. which we'll talk about later on, is that he's not a nice guy. He's not a hero. He's a he's an anti-hero. He's a murderer. He's a vagabond. He's a thief. He's a liar. Uh, and I, I think that works. I think it works in this in this section. It's still fun. Mm-hmm. And that fun. It there's is, there's yeah. a really good moment with a. Uh, Jordi Molla how do you pronounce his name Jordi Molla Jordi Molla um, who uh, there's a really really fun moment with a with a door and a bomb attached to the door which is very very tense but yep. also played for laughs and I quite like some of the bounty hunters Matt Nabel is, Dave Bautista is great Dave Bautista is fantastic in it which bodes well for uh, Guardians of the Galaxy um, I liked Katie Sackhoff's character to an extent we'll get onto that later yep. on she is uh, she's not served very well in the last third and I and I like Matt Nabel who's a former uh, Australian rugby player who plays uh, Boss Johns and anyone who knows her pitch black history will know that that name has a certain significance and that relationship between Riddick and Johns plays out very very well even if the chronology of the characters makes no sense uh, and people see the film and we can talk about that uh, maybe yeah. later on maybe people live a different length of time and age at a different rate in the future maybe they do or is it maybe not even the future it might be the past like Star Wars who knows anyway but and then uh, the last third of the film the, the third film in, uh, for the price of one is essentially a remake of Pitch Black where they're fighting off evil beasties in the dark but yeah, I had a big issue with this. Now, I've gone into this at some length on the website in the blog. Uh, I'm going to try and avoid spoilers here, but they're all in the blog. Uh, basically, uh, Riddick gets a bit rapey. And this film gets... Uh, <laughs> okay. This film gets very, very, frankly, misogynist, in my view. I don't think... I don't think it's trying to make a point. I think, honestly, if it was trying to say something, if, if it had invented a world of the future where women were treated as commodities and sex objects and it had a point to doing that, then that would be one thing. I don't think this film does. I think it is just not thought through the consequences of its actions. So there are six female characters in the script. Four of them are completely naked 
uh, one them at least full frontal writhing about on a bed for Vin Diesel's um, amusement they don't get a line um, a fifth woman is uh, has been abducted and presumably raped multiple times and is killed very very fast and then the sixth one is Katie Sackhoff who of course played Starbuck brilliantly in Battlestar Galactica is something of a hero she's tough as nails she's uh, clearly a very very competent mercenary she's Boss John's right hand and the way she is treated in the last third of the film is to my mind absolutely unforgivable and I was having such a good time in this film before that point I was enjoying it it was enjoyable hokum and then it completely lost me with the way it treated her in the, in the third act go and read Helen's blog for details of that I don't want to spark a, a war or an argument in here but I, I, I did get past that I can kind of Riddick is not meant to be a nice guy no, I but get here's that sort the thing. of thing I know, I know what you mean I do I agree, I agree I'm with not going to completely rant but the first film we actually saw through Fry's eyes not Riddick's um, and it had yeah. good, strong female characters. The second film had, I think, slightly less interesting, but at least well-developed female characters. Mm. Um, and now we've come to this one. And I, while Riddick is all the time described as a sociopath and a murderer, the only things we've ever actually seen him do are defend himself and defend other people. He's cold-blooded about it, but he's actually not that evil. So for him to turn around and he's behave the way though. that he does is, I think, as the protagonist of the film, I think he should be representing something different. And the fact that he acts in the way that he does, I think, is is pretty appalling. That was it's, my it's problem with it. Interesting. It, 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 I cannot fathom a scenario in which David Toohey, who wrote the script, and, and Vin Diesel's very, very involved in, yeah, in, the, in the uh, forging of this character, thought that that would be a funny. The way he interacts with Doll would be a funny or be cool. I just don't see it. But I, I, it didn't derail the film for me as much as it did you. But that's you know that's absolutely fine. I still think it's schlocky B movie fun. I think if you like Riddick and if you like Pitch Black, you'll get a kick out of this up to a certain point. I guess and I still think some of the action stuff is pretty good. We gave Riddick three stars, uh, which, as we say, is a recommendation. Do go and check it out and see if it pushes your buttons in the same way it has pushed Helen's. And do get in touch with us. Let, let us know what you think. Interestingly, just one one more quick point about Riddick before it goes on. This movie was developed very very independently. Yeah. So the second movie, uh, The Chronicles of Riddick, was developed. It was huge, 120 million, maybe even more, uh, universal movie. This one, because that movie didn't do that well, um, eventually Finn Diesel managed to use his Fast and Furious clout to get some more money to get this character, to whom he's very, very attached, back on the big screen. And I'm wondering if maybe that has had something to do with the, the script development process. If maybe if this had gone through the studio process, maybe someone would have gone, hang on, guys. Um... What? what? <laughs> yeah, maybe change this bit, what yeah. what you say to this this person here. Well, I mean, honestly, one of the reasons that I'm cross about this is that I, I love Pitch Black. I think The Chronicles of Riddick is a noble failure. I think, I, I really admire Vin Diesel's commitment to the character. I mean, he put his house on the line to make this film and that kind of filmmaking passion, I think, is a great thing. I just wish he'd made a slightly different film, that's all. And I'm just, that's... That's kind of upsetting. I wanted yeah. to be able to cheerlead for this, and I can't. And there's also an element of uh, of ambition with this movie. I know they didn't have a lot yeah. of money, although it does look fantastic. It cost what, about thirty million dollars, and it looks really, really good. I mean, it is at times, as I said in my review, Finn Diesel's Amazing World of Green Screen. But there are there's an incredible amount of really, really well, nicely realized CG beasts. Mm-hmm. The, the 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 world building here is is very effective, and I just think it's disappointing ultimately that it descends into a remake of Pitch Black. Not only to the point where you have the extended middle section is a riff on a section in Pitch Black, but the the end fighting the beasties, yeah. which are cool beasties, but still, you know, we've seen this before. In fact, there are things that happen at the end of this movie that echo things that happen in Pitch Black, which I'm sure is deliberate on David Dewey's part. But yeah. 
it just means it's a little redundant in terms of storytelling but there's still an awful lot in this movie to like which is why we gave it three stars let's move on now to a film directed by one of our previous guests Mr. David Lowry and his amazing moustache do check out our gallery empireonline.com forward slash podcast forward slash gallery to see his tash in all its beautiful great big bushy want to kind of get inside it glory anyway End of Body Science, Helen. Wow, that was a look inside It's an your amazing moustache. Wow. You could live in that moustache. Anyway, Helen. Yes, Ain't Them Body Saints. Uh, this is a story. It's, it starts off with uh, a sort of a lover's tiff in a, a very Malachian uh, environment. And it's, it's, it's actually, if, any, if it's possible, a very, very charming tiff. It's between Casey Affleck's Bob and Rooney Mara's uh, Ruth and their young lovers. She's sort of, you know, pressuring him to kind of shape up and, and he kind of promises to. And then she reveals that she's pregnant. Then almost immediately we, we cut to a little bit later and they're in a shootout with uh, the sheriff's department. And uh, he is basically carted off to prison. She shoots a sheriff. Uh, she didn't shoot the deputy. And uh, <laughs> sorry, so sorry. But he takes the blame and goes off to prison because obviously she's pregnant with the baby. Two of them are clearly devoted to each other, but she's left alone for four years uh, raising this little girl. He's going completely crazy with loneliness in prison. He is it tries to escape five times and sort of where the, the kind of, I guess, the main plot of the film picks up is when he finally uh, succeeds on his sixth attempt. He's kind of coming cross country to get back to her. He's just desperate to get back to her. She's just worried what's going to happen quite quite rationally and quite obviously. She thinks, you know, if he, if he turns up on their doorstep, she'll get in trouble and he'll be carted off immediately and, and for much longer. The twin dynamic of her sitting, waiting and, and getting more and more tense and him you know, fighting his way across country and uh, and trying to get back to her. Ben Foster plays the very kindly sher- sheriff who she actually yeah. shot. A yes. bit of a change from him because we're used to seeing him as a psychopath or a sociopath. Really. I keep expecting him in this movie to actually go completely nuts in, a, in the bit classic Ben Foster style <laughs> but uh, he doesn't. He's he doesn't. a really likeable, lovely character. With And speaking a, of incredible moustaches. Yeah, he's got a lovely tash. Good on you, Ben Foster. Yeah. Well done. So this kind of had, you know, shades for me of, of the likes of you know there's a little bit of Bonnie and Clyde at the beginning but it was more sort of a little bit of Badlands a little bit of the Defiant Ones in the sort of cross countryness. Um, it has that kind of Malachian flavour of people standing in fields and looking gorgeous as the sun sets uh, to it so it's 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 a, a classy looking kind of a thing it's a little bit slight it, it feels quite kind of stripped back and pared down while it's a kind of a crime drama romance thriller there's not a whole lot of of plot there there's not a whole lot of um of kind of you know twists mm. and turns to the story um but it but it, it does have a real atmosphere to it it's sort of it really 1960s kind 70s. of deep south, 70s yeah, deep 70s. south um and it, it really you know it's all those kind of washed out colors and it, it looks absolutely gorgeous yeah no it's, it's got a lovely elliptical style to it you know it it, it doesn't uh, lay out actions explicitly yeah. it's usually more interested in the aftermath of action than the action itself and I really really like the performances I thought uh, you know Casey Affleck is, is really becoming a very interesting leading man He's you know his face says a lot even when he's not saying a lot Rooney Mara is very very good and his accent is flawless Ben Foster is really dependable and solid and likeable which I think is important and Keith Carradine is fantastic yeah, he is. as a sort of um, uh, town former town bad guy who uh, who retreats from the life of crime because his son gets killed at the very very beginning of the film in the uh, in the shootout and uh, and he, he finds himself almost responsible for for Rooney Mara's Ruth in a way and it does have you know, it's it's nothing you won't have seen before 
that's that's for sure. But I think that's 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 deliberate on David Lowry's part. He's yeah. playing on he's riffing on things that we've on, on movies we've seen before, whether it's Badlands or uh, Robert Altman movies. You know, even I think there's even an element of uh, as he said in the past, McCabe and Mrs. Miller in this movie, which is very very interesting indeed, and you know, it looks beautiful. So. Um, I would definitely say go and uh, we give it the three stars, which again, as we say, is a recommendation. Uh, do go and check it out because I think David Lowry, like someone like Colin Trevorrow, who's who came up through the indie ranks with Safety Night Guaranteed, and is now moving on to Jurassic Park uh, Four. It's interesting if you talk to David Lowry how his his interests are really. I mean, he loves independent cinema. Obviously, clearly, Alban Malik are very much touched on this for him. But this is also a man who whose favourite movie is Star Wars, and he loves Star Wars, and he started out writing this movie as a sort of Taken-style thriller, and he still has movies like that in his in his drawer. And I think it's really interesting that we have a lot of independent filmmakers now who are coming up, having loved movies like that through the 70s and 80s when they were growing up, and they're bringing independent sensibilities uh, to blockbusters, and I think that's really, really interesting, and hopefully bodes well for the future. Do they ever answer the question, ain't nobody saints? No, they don't. That, that is not explicitly said in the film. Final thing is, with that whole Ben Foster thing, I think he fits into the uh, Giovanni Ribisi problem, where you see him on screen and go, whoop, file under foreboding, we know what's going on there. Uh, a little bit. I mean, it's, it's easy to forget that he played Angel in X-Men The Last Stand, and he has been the hero in movies. He was the hero in Pandorum, for example. Uh, it's easy to forget Pandorum, <laughs> I realise. <laughs> but he has, and I know what, he does have that sort of intensity to him. He does have that sort of... Three-tender humour. Yeah, yeah absolutely. He's horrible in three-tender humour. and you, Yeah, crazy eyes, and you can't get a feeling that this man is very sweaty and could go off at any second now. But, you know, he's a very, very a, good underrated actor. He's a little bit of Aaron Paul in him, and I feel like if Aaron Paul does become yes. the new super-duper haze and need for speed, I'll feel bad for Ben Foster. There needs to be a movie where they're twins. Yeah, absolutely. Yes, after the one where Leonardo DiCaprio and Dane DeHaan play brothers. Uh, speaking of Aaron Paul, though, Skinny Pete's in this, so look Skinny out for him. Skinny Pete is in this, yes, Charles Barker and a very, very different guys. You as, know, Skinny uh, Pete's a very clever guy. He plays uh, violin and, his, uh, and piano. He is a very intelligent human being. He's also in his 40s. What? Yeah, what? He could play uh, Billy Bob Thornton's son in a movie. Hey, come on, we're connecting all of these connections. Yes, so Leonardo DiCaprio playing Dane DeHaan's brother, cousin. Yeah, brother. He could, they could probably play father and son oh, now. Oh, harsh. Which is really depressing when Leonardo, Leonardo DiCaprio is so old now he could play a dad. But yes, he probably could. Uh, Aaron Paul and Ben Foster as Aaron Paul's evil twin. Yeah, and thingy as what should we call it brilliant okay that's sorted that's three stars for antibody saints also out this week is uh, alan coming in any day now which we give three stars to we also have paolo sorrentino's uh, can hit the great beauty which phil loves love. loves I it love this film so naturally we gave it three stars as well three stars um, we what also a... give <laughs> yeah three stars to the low budget british movie jadu uh and four stars to luke evans turning the tables on some psychopaths because he turns out to be the biggest psycho of them all in the blood-soaked horror movie No One Lives. So do check that one out. Such a good No, check out The Great Beauty. Uh, and also check out The Great Beauty. So there you go. That's it for this week's Empire Podcast in association with Squarespace. Join us next week for more film-related fun when we'll be talking to Ron Howard, as I mentioned before, but also we'll be joined by, and this is very exciting, Mr. Roland Emmerich, director of White House Down and Independence Day. Will the pod booth survive and what will be left of it? <laughs> uh, until then, it's goodbye from Helen. Tiddly. Goodbye from Phil. Cheerio. Goodbye from Ali. Bye now. And goodbye from me. I'm off to clench my fist and redo this link. See you next week.
Hello and welcome to the science bit of the Empire podcast where Ali, the editor, that's uh, me by the way, tells you a little bit more about our sponsor, Squarespace, and how to make use of their free trial and discount deal. If you're not already in the know or missed Chris saying it earlier, Squarespace is the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create a professional website, blog, portfolio, or online store, or whatever else. For a free trial and 10% off your first purchase on new accounts, go to squarespace.com and use the offer code EMPIRE9. But you want more details. I understand that. So just for you, here are a few more reasons why you should use Squarespace. For starters, Squarespace is very easy to use indeed, as well as being user-friendly and doing all the tricky stuff for you, search engine optimization, hosting, and making your site mobile, tablet, portable device friendly. Just for starters, they've also got a huge vault of pre-prepared designs and style options for you to be getting on with and tweak to your taste. Sign up for a year and get a free domain name. Enjoy an on-hand support team working 24 hours a day, seven days a week and all for $8 a month, which you can translate into UK money if you have one of those calculator things, with, as mentioned earlier, a free trial and 10% off your first purchase with the Empire Podcast's very own offer code, Empire9 via squarespace.com. Thank you for sticking around and listening to me talking about our sponsor. If you are even considering making a blog, do give Squarespace a chance because, you know, you listen to the Empire Podcast and you obviously love us. I've decided that. You obviously do. Anyway, thanks for listening. Goodbye. Goodbye.